Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. Our brother Jeff read it. I'll read it again. And then I'm going to read a New Testament verse, just one verse to set it. Actually, as you turn to 2 Kings 17, verses 21, 23, I'll start with the New Testament passage. It's just one verse to quote to you to set our hearts and minds ready for God's word from the book of Kings. If it's your first time here, this is a different type of sermon. We're going through an overview sermon series. So typically I would just preach one shorter passage and the words and goal of that passage would be the shape and control the words and goal of the sermon in the context of the whole Bible. But now I'm doing the same thing. Words and goal of the, of the text are gonna control the words of the, and goal of the sermon in light of the whole Bible. That's expository preaching. But it's just a lot of text. So we're doing First and Second Kings, which is, uh, what is that, like 47 chapters of the Bible. But we still want that to control the sermon. But to get that in light of the whole Bible, listen to Matthew 1.17, and then I'll read to you the Second Kings 17, 21 and 23 passage. Matthew 1.1 Matthew 1, 1 says this, On account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew 1.17 so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. We want to think about from David until the exile. That's what we're thinking about when we, when we do the book of Kings. And then from there, we'll get to Jesus eventually. But So go to, to 2 Kings 17. Verse 21, and hear God's word. This is a summary of what happened to Israel and a preview of what's going to happen to Judah. When, when Yahweh tore Israel from the house of David, Israel made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following Yahweh the Lord and caused them to commit grave sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed and did not turn away from them. Finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence, just as he had declared through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we sang it and we mean it. We need you this hour. We admit, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing but waste our time and wander off in our thoughts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your word, to think about First and Second Kings. Lord, give us the gift of understanding the big picture of these two books. Help us not to just understand the content, but help us to know Christ more through this. We trust, Lord, that you will speak to us and your, your spirit will guide us as a church family. So do that, Lord, we ask you and we beg you this morning. Help me to preach. Help us to all listen and humbly hear and heed your word and strengthen us in your ways. We need you now, Lord, and we come to you in faith because of your son's life, death, and resurrection for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story of the Bible is the story of God desiring to plan and share his blessing across the whole globe. He creates Adam and Eve to cover the whole earth with his image bearers and his glory. 
And yet, uh, so he commissions Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? But Adam rebels and plunges the whole world into sin and death. And so they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, kicked out of God's land. And then God promises hope. They're cursed in Adam, kicked out of the land. But through Abraham, God promises blessing. He'll give Abraham a land, a people, and a blessing. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through this great nation. God takes them out of Egypt. And when he does, he sets them in Mount Sinai with Moses. And he says in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, that he will make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they keep his covenant. So how is the blessing through this great nation going to reach all nations? Through this holy nation. As they keep the covenant and shine for Christ, as it says in, or shine for God, as it says in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, that when they obey God, the nations will look around and say, what great nation is this? Who is their God? And they'll find out that Yahweh is God, and not just their God, but the God of all. And that's how they would mediate the blessing of Yahweh, the covenant God, to the nations through their holiness, through their royal priesthood. And so God makes them a nation, and he gives them a Davidic king, King David, and then gives David this tremendous promise that through David, there would be an eternal king, or a king to sit on his throne forever and ever. And so the question is, will this nation, and will this royal priesthood under this Davidic king, will they be that holy nation to bring the blessing to the nations? Will God finally get his, the whole reason he created, to cover the earth, with his image bearers, glorifying him and shining for him in the world. Would humanity be saved through this great nation and through this set-apart kingship? Would God have his people in his place under his rule and blessing? Well, the story of Israel's kings in, this, in these two books, it's really one book, First and Second Kings. In this book, it's tragic. It's a tragedy that starts off at a high point, and it's just all downhill. So we're just going to have a downhill um, Thinking uh, downhill exercise of our minds as we follow this story into the depths of human evil, hypocrisy, fickleness, and brokenness. There's a wrong way to read this book, though. The wrong way to read this book is to see all this failure and sin and hypocrisy and feel good about yourself that you're not them, that you're better than them. That would be the wrong way to read this book. That would grow you in pride and self-righteousness. The right way to read this book and think about these kings that we're about to survey is to see them as a mirror to reflect our own sins and evils. We're not exactly like them, so I'm not saying every one of them is you, but let that be a mirror to convict us of sin and to draw us near to God in humility and a desire to heed God's word. So here's the main goal, and I'm not going to go back to this main goal. It's just a general goal for, for this book and for the sermon. Feel the hopelessness in you so that you find true hope in God. Feel the hopelessness in you, and even in us. Feel the hopelessness in us, so that we find true hope in God. So here's Israel under David's son to be this light, to bring hope and joy to a cursed world of sin, death, and darkness. Would Israel succeed? I already gave you the answer. It's a tragedy. The, the answer is no. But I want you also to think about this way as we go through the story. What would you do if you were king or chief advisor? So you're going to hear a bunch of kings. What would you do if you were king? What would you do if you were the chief advisor to the king? 
I, I always think about this when I think, what would I do if I was Adam in the garden? I know what I would like to think I would do, but what, I, what would I really do? So we're going to go through this in five, five, um, five steps for the story, or five progressions in the story. First of all, the son of David fails. That's Solomon. Secondly, the kingdom splits and sins. The kingdom divides and sins. So the kingdom, so Solomon fails, kingdom splits and sins, prophets speak, and then God judges. Maybe four. It's God judges twice, so if you want to make that twice. Okay? Solomon fails, the kingdom splits and sins, prophets speak, and God judges. And then he judges again. So let's look at these uh, in order as we just kind of go through. So start in 1 Kings chapter 1. And we're just gonna we're gonna kind of dip in at different points. I'm just gonna be quoting a lot of texts here, and we'll, we'll work our way through and make some applications along the way, and tie it up with applications at the end, if time permits. All right. So first of all, Solomon fails. In chapter one, David is dying. We talked about an overview of, Sir, of Samuel a few weeks ago. Here, David is on his deathbed. He's dying. And in verse five, Adonijah, son of Haggith, kept exalting himself, saying, "And this is the heart of sin. This is the heart of the fall." He kept saying and exalting himself, saying, I will be king. That's the cry of our sinful hearts right there. Exalting ourselves and saying, I will be king. That sinful sentiment is the thread across the, the book of Kings and really across humanity. And so Adonijah wants to be king. He tries to set up himself as king. And then uh, Bathsheba Solomon's mom and another prophet, Nathan, comes and tells David, hey, Adonijah's going to become king and we're going to be executed. So David, I'm summarizing here the story, David makes Solomon king. And so Solomon now becomes the king of Israel. And then Solomon secures the throne. He kills his brother Adonijah because Adonijah makes a dumb request to have um, David's servant girl as his wife, which is almost like a, a swipe at the throne. So Solomon has him killed off. And then God, David says this to Solomon. And I want you to get this because this is part of the problem with Israel. He tells Solomon, Solomon, you need to, and we prayed about this this morning, uh, by God's providence, not by plan, my plan. You need to establish justice in Israel. So there's Shimei who mocked me, the king. I want you to make sure that he doesn't go down in peace. There's Joab, our general, who disobeyed me not once, but twice, maybe three times and murdered people in peacetime, don't let that guy go down in peace. You need to extend justice and make sure that this man pays for his crimes. And then there's Abiath, Abiathar, the, the one who betrayed um, David as well. And Solomon says, David says to Solomon, make sure you take care of that. So tie up these loose ends and make sure you establish a nation of righteousness and justice. And so Solomon does that. And then go to chapter 3, verse 3. Here's Solomon's problem in seed form. 3 verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord by walking in his statutes of his father David, but he also sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. There's a problem already in seed form. Loves God, but is sacrificing elsewhere. In chapter 3 verses 7 through 14, God says, what do you want me to give you? And Solomon prays for what? What's his one request, if you know? He asks God for what? Wisdom. Wisdom to rule his people. Wisdom for justice. Wisdom to make the right decisions. And so that's what Solomon prays for. God says, I'll give it to you. Solomon starts judging with justice and righteousness. And then you have here, this is the high point. This is the second highest point in Israel's history. So if there's two high points in, in, in 
human history in the Old Testament, there's two. One is the Garden of Eden, right? It's all downhill from there. Here's the second highest point. Look at 1 Kings 4, verse 20. This is as close as you're going to get to the Garden of Eden in the Old Testament. Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand by the sea. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines. Jump down to verse 24. Solomon had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, here it is, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own what? His own vine and his own fig tree. Everyone was well off. Everyone had peace. Everyone was rich. No poverty. That's like Garden of Eden, right? That's utopia right there. Perfect safety, perfect peace, wisest king in the world. This is great. And this is the high point, really, in Israel's history. Everyone under their own vine and their own fig tree, which is a symbol of everyone having their own personal wealth and uh, flourishing. Not only that, in chapter 4, verses 29 through 31 and 34, the nations come, the ethnic people groups come to hear Solomon's wisdom. So remember, this is the promise, to be a light to the nations. They come to hear Solomon's wisdom, and what does Solomon say? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of? The fear of the Lord. And what's the Lord's name? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So you got nations coming from all around the world to come to Solomon, teach us wisdom. Step one, fear Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he doing? He's preaching the Lord. And the Lord, the, the blessing of submitting to the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is being proclaimed to the nations as they come to visit Solomon. That's in the end of chapter 4. In chapters 5 through 8, Solomon um, prays for the temple to be God's holy place where no matter what you do, when you sin, when, when Israel sins, when they're going to war, when they're going to battle, when there's famine in the land, where there's no rain, May they look to this temple that I have built, Solomon prays. And when they pray here, God forgive them and hear their prayer and answer their cry. So that's the temple, the center of Jerusalem right there and the center where God's putting his name. And God says in chapter 9, all right, Solomon, I'll grant you your prayer request if you're careful to walk in my ways. Notice that if, because that's big for this whole, the rest of the story. If you're careful to walk in my ways and keep my covenant. Well, Solomon wasn't careful. Go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, says this. King Solomon loved many foreign women, in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn your hearts away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh his God, as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in Yahweh's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to Yahweh. And there's more gods if you read verse 7. And so in verse 9, God was angry with Solomon and he, because he turned his heart away. 
And so in verse 11, God judges Solomon and says, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I command you, I will tear my kingdom away from you, the kingdom away from you, and give it to your servant. So there's the judgment on Solomon. I'm going to give part of the kingdom to your servant, but I'll keep a little bit for David's house. because of, Not because of you, Solomon, because you messed it up, but because of David. All right, so Jeroboam becomes this anointed king of Israel. And I wish I could tell his story, but I'm going to move on for the sake of time here. Jeroboam, he goes on the run from Solomon because he finds out he's going to be king. And then Jeroboam is given this promise. Look at verses 38 and 39. Jeroboam is another key figure you need to keep in mind when you're reading Kings because his name comes up every, at the end of every king, basically. Listen to, what, listen to Jeroboam's offer. This is almost David-like and Abraham-like. This is what the prophet says to Jeroboam, verse 38 of chapter... 11. After that, Jeroboam, if you obey all I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David. I will give you Israel. Wow. What a tremendous promise. The, the eternal covenant that God gave David, I mean, that, that, that he'll perpetually have a, a king forever. He said, I'm going to give you the same deal. That's a crazy deal. Now, what does Jeroboam do with that deal? Well, we'll find out in a second. But look at what Solomon does in response in verse 40. Therefore, Solomon tried to what? Kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt. So Jeroboam was anointed by a prophet, chosen by God to be the king of Israel, and Solomon tries to what? Kill him. Who does that remind you of? Who is Solomon acting like? King Saul. King Saul. David, he was told that, the, that, that he was going to lose the dynasty or lose the kingship. A prophet anointed David, and Saul tries to kill David in rebellion to God. And here's Solomon, like Saul, rebelling against what, whatever God ordains is right, not for Solomon. I'm going to buck against what God has ordained. I'm going to try to kill him and end God's plan. It just shows how far Solomon had fallen. So that's Solomon's failure. Let's go to the second one. The kings or the kingdom splits and sins. Well, in chapter 12, Solomon's son is given a, um, he's now the king. And Jeroboam comes up to him and says, hey, lighten our load. And and Rehoboam says, let me, give give me three days to think about it. And then I'll I'll decide whether I should lighten your workload or not, Israel. And so he, he asks the wise elderly counselors and they all say, yeah, lighten their load. They need, they need rest. And he says, all right, nah, I'm not sure if I like that. Let me talk to my young friends. So he talks to his young friends, and they say, dude, tell them that your dad was a wuss, that you're stronger than your dad would ever be, and that if you thought your, your dad was harsh, you're going to even be harsher. Like, show them to respect you. So um, it says here that, that um, in verse 13, he rejected the advice of the elders that they had given him, and he spoke with harshness. And this came about because God ordained it to rip the kingdom apart. So he came back, answered harshly. Jeroboam said, we out. We're out of here. And so they rebelled against Israel, I mean against Judah. So 10 tribes went with Jeroboam in the north, Judah in the south. Jeroboam is about to attack to get them back. And God says, stand down. This is for me. So Rehoboam obeys. And so Jeroboam is in the north and you got Judah in the south. Okay, so now you have the kingdom split in two. All right, you guys following so far? The kingdom is split in two. Question. Will Israel become that shining light to the dark world that we need? Will they be that holy nation? 
What would you do if you're Jeroboam? Now you get a free, clear, clean slate to be king. What are you going to do? God just said, if you obey me, what? I'll establish your kingdom forever. Guess what Jeroboam does in chapter 13? What an opportunity here to become Abraham, David, Jeroboam, to put your name right among, along their side. What does Jeroboam do? We'll look at 12, 26 through 28. Chapter 12, verse 26 well, you could, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I'll summarize it, but you could look at it. Jeroboam says, I'm scared because Jerusalem has the temple. And if we don't have anything here, people are going to go back to Judah and Jerusalem. So I'm going to build my own place for people to worship. So guess what he builds? A golden what? Golden calf. Two golden calves. The north and the south to block off his people from going back to Judah and straying. Yahweh, the God who's seen in this golden calf, will be worshipped. That reminds you of the Israelites in Exodus, right? But the crazy thing here, and this is an application point for you, brothers and sisters, he was given a promise by God. All you got to do is follow me. I got this. Israel will be yours. And he couldn't, I mean, he became king. Everything was going according to God's word. And then when he gets a chance now to start off clean, does he believe God's word? He doesn't believe God's word. That's what happens to us, right? Like, we, we have a situation. We know what God says. We know what he says. But it just doesn't make sense to us. We just can't do what he says because we don't trust him. We just think that our way is better. Our fears take over. And when our fears take over, we're not able to, to, to fear the Lord because we're fearing other things. And that's what Jeroboam did. And that led to idolatry, gross idolatry. And so God judged Jeroboam. All right, so that's, What's happening with Jeroboam? And so Jeroboam did evil. He was judged. And now I'm going to survey a bunch of kings in machine gun-like fashion and just give you like a brief word on each king. Okay, so we're just going to sweep through and then we're going to slow down for Elijah and Elisha and then and Ahab. And then we'll, we'll, we'll slow down at certain parts, but we're just going to kind of speed through the kings. So I just want to give you a shout out, give each king a shout out here and a little bit about them. Okay, so Rehoboam was king of Judah. So that's the south and the, Israel's the north. He was crowned at, at age 41, and he reigned 17 years, and then uh, he died. Abijam of Judah, his son, reigned three years. And it says in 1 Kings 15, 3 through 5, you could turn there, I'm just going to read text, okay? 1 Kings 15, 3 through 5, because I want the repetition of these verses to land on you, let God's word land. Abijam walked in all the sins of his father before him, before him his, uh, his father before him had committed, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh his God, as his ancestor David had been. But for the sake of David, Yahweh his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up his son after him and by preserving Jerusalem. For David did what was right in Yahweh's sight, and he did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hethite. That was when David committed adultery. So then Asa is the next son. He reigns 41 years in 1 Kings 15, and it says this about Asa in 1 Kings 15, 11. Asa did what was right in Yahweh's sight, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols that his ancestors had made. Remember, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. So he, he banishes all that. But, it says in verse 14, the high places were not taken away. I want you to notice that, setting up for the end. But Asa was wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh his entire life. Then we go back to the north, not to the Davidic kings, but to the north. Nadab of Israel, he reigned for two years in chapter 15. 
Nadab, verse 26, Nadab, Nadab did what was evil in Yahweh's sight and walked in the ways of his father and the sin he had caused Israel to commit. If you were king, would you be obedient or would you not be? Next, we have Baasha of Israel in 1 Kings 15, 34. He ruled 24 years. Look at 15, 34. He did what was evil in Yahweh's sight and walked in the ways of Jeroboam and the sin he had caused Israel to commit. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jehu, son of Hananiah, against Baasha. Because I raised you up from the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, but you have walked in the ways of Jeroboam and have caused my people Israel to sin, angering me with their sins. Take note, I will eradicate Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Anyone who belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who is his and dies in the field, the birds will eat. Then you have Elah of Israel. He reigned two years, and he was killed by Zimri. 1 Kings 16, 11 through 13 says, When he became king, as soon as he was seated on his throne, Zimri struck down the entire house of Baasha. He did not leave a single male, including his kinsmen and his friends. Now here, I want you to hear this part, another theme in Kings. So Zimri destroyed the entire house of Baasha according to, and I sent you an email on this, according to what? According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken against Baasha through the prophet Jehu. This happened because all the sins of Baasha and the sins and those of his son Elah, which they committed and caused Israel to commit, angering the Lord God of Israel with their worthless idols. So Zimri of Israel takes over, 1 Kings 16, 18, and 19. He died because of the sin he committed by doing what was evil in Yahweh's sight and by walking in the ways of Jeroboam and the sin he had to commit. He, he caused Israel to commit. All right, and then you get to Omri of Israel. He reigned 12 years. Omri did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. He did more evil than all who were before him. So he's going even worse than Jeroboam. What was different? He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, in every respect, and continued in his sins that, caused, that, caused, that he caused Israel to commit, angering the Lord God of Israel with their worthless idols. Then we get to Ahab, and we're going to slow down here for Ahab. So you got all these evil kings in the north. You have a mixed bag in the south. Ahab of Israel, he ruled, he ruled 22 years. Now everyone look at 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33. Ahab is kind of the climax of evil kings in Israel, at least. His name is infamous, like Judas or Lucifer or something like that. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in Yahweh's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and, they and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger Yahweh, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab's the worst. Now, what, what, why is Ahab worse than Jeroboam? Jeroboam built two golden calves. But who was Jeroboam telling people to worship? What was his name? What was the God's name? Yahweh. Now he used golden calves, which is, which is sinful and evil, but he wasn't saying worship another God, God by a different name. Ahab takes it another step now, and he's marrying outside, and then he's worshiping Baals, and he's setting up Asherah poles to other gods. And so into this new extreme, you have this middle section of First and Second Kings where it focuses on Elijah 
and Elisha, the prophet. So my third point here, which is going to kind of overlap with the second point, as the kingdom continues to sin, the prophets speak. The prophets speak for God. So Elijah comes. Enter in Elijah in chapter 17. He announces a famine, in, uh, and then he provides for a, a widow. It's really fun to read these stories. I really wish I could tell like all of these stories, but they're all like sermons in themselves. He raises a son from the dead. And then he meets Ahab in chapter 18. In chapter 18, he's hiding. And, um, and Ahab is basically saying, whoever finds Elijah, you need to tell me or I'm going to kill you. So Obadiah, Elijah shows himself to Obadiah, who's hiding 50 other prophets of Yahweh, because everyone's worshiping Baal. And he says, hey, tell, tell Ahab I'm going to show myself to him today. And Obadiah says, no, because if you hide again, then I'm going to die. And he says, no, I'll show them today. And Obadiah says to, Ahab, uh, to Elijah, and I want you to hear this point because it's going to come up later in Elijah's life. He says to Elijah, I've been hiding 50 prophets of Yahweh. And I don't want to die because I'm faithful to Yahweh. Okay, just go tell King Ahab I'm going to show up. So Elijah shows up with Ahab. They talk. And Ahab says, um, bring the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. Let's have a showdown to see who's truly God. So you guys know the story. Some of you know the story. So the, the prophets of Baal, hundreds of prophets of Baal go to Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah goes to Mount Carmel. They set up two altars and they say, okay, whichever God can light the fire on the altar is the true God. And Elijah says very famously, how long, Israel, will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Stop this idolatry and this waffling back and forth of worshiping Yahweh and Baal and going back and forth and, and trying to do both. Follow the true God, whoever he is, all right? All right. So the prophets of Baal do their thing. They start cutting themselves and setting up the altar and praying to Baal to get fire to come down on them, uh, on, the, on the altar, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen so much so that Elijah starts mocking them. He says, say it louder. Maybe he's, maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, like maybe he's sleeping. Wake him up. And for hours they're trying to wake up Baal to send down fire. Nothing happens. So by the end of the day, Elijah's like, all right, it's my turn. So he sets up the altar, puts the sacrifice there, and he says, pour water on it. So they, they soak the whole thing in water. Pour water again. Pour water again. So this whole thing is soaked in water. Then he prays to, then he prays to the Lord, Yahweh, and he says, Yahweh, because you're truly God, show Israel that you're God today. And so send fire. And all of a sudden, you're here outdoor just like this. It's better to preach this, this part outdoor than indoor, right? You're outdoor. There's an altar. Look up in the sky, you see a little light is coming, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this great fireball comes down and burns up the whole altar and swallows up all the water in the trenches. All the water that was there, all of it was burned up. And the people fall on their faces and say, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And God shows that he is the true God and that you ought to worship him alone. Now, the sad thing is that didn't produce repentance among Israel. And so... Um, Elijah, Elijah, um, he, he, um, let me see here. I want to make sure I'm not going ahead of myself. Elijah goes to, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm in uh, 1 Kings 19. Yeah, 1 Kings 19, Elijah goes to Mount Sinai in discouragement. And he says this prayer twice. And maybe you feel this way. Maybe God has this for you today. Elijah says, to God twice in verse uh, 19 verse 10 and 19 verse 
um, 14. God says, Elijah, why are you here? Why'd you come to Mount Sinai? And Elijah says, everyone, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking to take my life. I'm the only faithful one. This is what happens when you're discouraged, right? And you're depressed. There's no one who gets you, God, but me. And I'm the only one. And he goes to Mount Sinai. Now, is, is Elijah the only one? What did Obadiah say? Who was he hiding? How many prophets was he hiding? Fifty. And God even says to, to Elijah that there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not the only one. I mean, I know it's discouraging because there's not a lot, but you're not the only one. You're going to be okay. But why did Elijah go to Mount Sinai? Who else was at Mount Sinai? Um, who else was at Mount Sinai? What other famous character was at Mount Sinai? Moses. And remember when, um, when Israel was idolatrous with the two golden calves? Do you remember what deal God gave Moses? Step aside, Moses. I'm going to wipe out all of Israel. I'm going to start new with you. And Moses said what? God, no, blot my name out, but please let them be. Elijah's the opposite here in his discouragement. He's saying, God, there's nobody but me. I don't know if you want to wipe them all out, but if you do, um, you could start over with me. Like, it's, it's okay. Like, I'm good. Um, and God doesn't give him that offer. No, no, I love Israel. There's still people there who are faithful. And so Elijah is sent on to keep doing his work. All right. So then um, Ahab eventually, oh man, let's go to uh, chapter 21. I want us to read here and think about Ahab's response. So Ahab is a wicked king, but here's a little bit of evidence of God's grace. Look at chapter 21, verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, so my enemy, you found me, have you? He replied, I have found you because you devoted yourself to do what is evil in Yahweh's sight. This is what Yahweh says, I'm about to bring disaster on you and I'll eradicate your descendants. I'll wipe out all of your males both slave and free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have angered me and because you caused Israel to sin. And so Ahab's response is in verse 27. Surprisingly, when Ahab heard these words, what did he do? He tore his clothes, put sackcloth over his body, and fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. This man was broken. This is what repentance is, at least right here. He hears God's word, he feels the weight of his sin, and he's mourning over sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here he humbles himself in repentance. And then verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not bring disaster during his lifetime because he has humbled himself before me. I'll bring the disaster on his house during his son's lifetime. So here, God forgives. The point here is that the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to say something to you if you're not a Christian here. There's a lot of history about a lot of kings. But if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming on this uh, special type of Sunday where we're doing an overview of a huge book. But let me tell you the main message of Christianity very briefly. God made you and he made me. He made us in his image to enjoy him. But we have rebelled against God in sin. Like Ahab, like these kings, we worship other gods. We worship other, we have other treasures. Or we might like God, but we like other things more than God, if we're honest. 
We've rebelled against God. And because of that, the penalty for that sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so we deserve damnation. We deserve to go to hell under God's wrath forever and ever. Not just you, but me. All humans are sinners. But here's the good news, that God listens to the humble. God gives the gift of humility. Now, that by itself doesn't save because if you commit crime and you just humble yourself, the crime is still there. Here's, here's why God can forgive the humble. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the life we should have lived, perfect, holy, worshipful. He died on the cross for sinners, for his people, so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in him, you would be saved because his death would have paid for your sins and his resurrection would be the resurrection life that you now live because he rose from the dead on the third day. So here's the good news to sinners, and we're all sinners. If you humble yourself before God, when God tells you you're a sinner and you're, you're, you deserve death, and I will condemn you and damn you for your sins. When God tells you that, if you just say, well, forget you, God, well, then judgment continues on you. The judgment that's already on you continues. But if you, like Ahab here, at least for this brief moment for Ahab, if you humble yourself before God and say, God, I am a sinner. You're right. I do deserve death. I am damned. But you did send your son Jesus to die for my sins and rise from the dead. I will trust in him and hope in him. I'll call out to him to save me from my sins. And I'll turn away from my sins and turn to God. Then God will forgive you. He gives grace to the humble. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to thank you for coming here. Look around at all these other sinners here and just say, hey, what was it like to humble yourself before God? What is it like to be forgiven by God? Ask any Christian here what it's like. And we'd love to, there's nothing more we'd love to do is to talk to you about how we are sinners before God and God gave us grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and how he humbled us before him. So I encourage you and plead with you to humble yourselves before God. So that's Ahab, a little glimpse of grace. But Ahab also shows us our sin, Christian and non-Christian, in the next part. Look at chapter 22, verse 8. Ahab here says something that really reflects our heart. So Ahab is about to go to war, and all his false prophets are saying, you're going to win the battle, you're going to win the battle. And then the other king from the south says, hey, Ahab, can we ask a prophet of Yahweh? And here's what Ahab says in verse 8. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, there is still one man who can inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him. <laughs> Why does he hate him? I hate him because he what? He never prophesies what? Good about me, but only disaster. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. I want you to hear, let's just zoom in here on Ahab's thoughts. I have one more of Yahweh I can inquire, but I hate him. Why do I hate him? Because he what? He never what? Never prophesies what? Good. There's two things here in, in Ahab's words that reflect our heart sometimes. Never and good. I, I, I want to know what God says, but, I, I, but he never says anything good to me. God's, God's commands are not good for me. His promises are not good for me. It's going to let me down. It's going to disappoint me. It's going to hurt me. And this is the difference between faith and doubt. It says in 1 John 5, 3 that God's commands are not burdensome. God's commands are good for us, aren't they? God is our greatest good, isn't he? And God's promises are good. Even God's rebuke is good for us, isn't it? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? 
but the flattery of others is, is, like, is like an enmity, an enemy with enmity towards you. Even, either, even faithful wounds to heal you are good for you. It's not the word of God that's the problem. It's whether we actually believe that God is good to us with what he says to us, even when it's something that we don't initially like. Do you feel that sometimes? Whatever God says to me, it's just never good. Or this particular word of God is not good for me. And if God just understood my situation, he wouldn't say or want that. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of unbelief. The heart of unbelief is that God is not at his core good and good to you. And that's a lie from the pit of hell that got Eve and Adam to eat the fruit, that got Ahab, that got Solomon, and that will eventually get Israel and Judah exiled. That God's word and his calling and his commands and God himself is not good. Never prophesies good about me. Do you believe God's words are good? Do you trust that God has your good and happiness in mind when he speaks to you? Or does God seem more like a threat to your happiness? Are his commands a burden? Well, let's continue on with the other kings here. Jehoshaphat is the next king. He's good, but he doesn't take away the high places. Ahaziah, king of Israel, he reigns for two years. He does evil. By the way, in Israel, they're all evil. There's no one who does good. In the south, in Judah, there's some who do good. There's some who don't do good. Okay? So Ahaziah in the north reigns two years, does what's evil, walks in the sins of Jeroboam. And not only this, I got to tell you this story just because it's kind of fun. Ahaziah gets sick. So he's worshiping Baals or he's worshiping other gods, right? And he says, when he's sick in 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1, he's sick and he says, he sends a messenger. This is the king of Israel, right? He says, hey, messenger, go to the god of Ekron to Baalzebub. Does that name sound familiar? Go to the god of Ekron to Baalzebub and ask him if I'm going to get better. So the messenger goes. And then the messenger comes back real quick. So it's probably like a few days journey. Messenger probably goes out. An hour later, he's back. He's like, why are you back already? Oh, because some man came up to me and said, why are you asking Baalzebub? Is there not a god in Israel? Is Yahweh not god of Israel? Why are you going there? Because you said that? Because you wanted to inquire of Baalzebub? You're going to die. And then Ahaziah scratches his head. He's like, wait up. Hold on. What sort of man came up to meet you? And the guy said, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. I just love that. That like, you know, wait, what is he? Harry? Leather belt? Elijah. I knew it. Dang. And so Ahaziah dies according to the word of the Lord. And then Elijah, so, and then for Elijah, it's time for him to be taken up to heaven. So Elijah has Elisha, his disciple, his successor who follows him around. And he's about to go up to heaven. And Elisha is told by Elijah, if you see me when I go to heaven, or he says, do you have any last request? I want your power. I want double your power or double portion of your power. And he says, uh, that's hard. But if you see me when God takes me up to heaven, then I'll give it to you. Or then you'll have it. If not, then you won't. So he starts traveling to Gilgal, to Bethel, excuse me, to Jericho, crosses the Jordan River on dry land. Sound familiar? Goes to the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan. And there, char a chariot of fire comes and sweeps Elijah up and takes Elijah to, to heaven. And as he's going, Elijah's like, my, my Lord, my Lord, my master. And then the, his mantle drops. 
to the floor. Elisha picks up the mantle, puts it on, and receives the double portion of Elijah's power. So Elisha goes back to the Jordan River, puts his uh, mantle, cloak on the water, and guess what happens? Water stops, dry ground. Walks through the Jordan on dry ground. Goes to Jericho. And when he gets to Jericho, he heals the water there. And, um, and then he, he starts to... Um, then, then some young kids, this is in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, start mocking him at Bethel, where the golden calf is, and say, hey, Baldy, hey, Baldy, go up, Baldy. So they call Elisha Baldy, and they're mocking him. So Elisha turns to these 42 kids. We don't, we don't know how old they were. Turns to these 42 kids who are mocking the prophet of Yahweh, and he curses them. And two she-bears come out and kill the 42 kids. And Elisha moves on with his ministry. And you might think, well, what's the point of that? Not, uh, one is just kind of shocking, you know. Um, powerful on Elisha's part, scary, mocking a, a prophet. But it, it shows the, the attitude of Israel, that the prophets of God, the prophets of Yahweh speaking God's word, are mocked. They're not taken seriously. And, and their words are not taken seriously. And the judgment is curse and death. And so Elisha goes back to the other side. Now, Elisha going across the Jordan is almost like Joshua and Moses where Moses passes the mantle to Joshua, and then Joshua crosses the Jordan on dry land, remember that, into the conquest. It's almost like Elisha has this kind of reiteration of that, but let's move on here. So Elisha prophesies. He does a lot of miracles that are almost Jesus-like, raising the dead, multiplying bread for, for the hungry, stopping a whole army, all of these different things that Elisha does. He's, and he's very powerfully just speaking God's word, warning the kings to repent and trust in Yahweh. Okay, let me go, go through a few more kings here. Jehoram of Judah reigned for 32, uh, became king at 32. Anyone here 32 years old? Raise your hand if you're 32 years old and you're not ashamed to be 32 years old. Jose. So it would be like Jose or Heber. At 32, Heber becomes king and reigns for eight years. And, and not Heber, but Jehoram was walking in the ways of the kings of Israel and walking in evil. And then Ahaziah of Judah in chapter 8. He reigns one year. He's 22 years old when he was crowned. Wonder anyone, any 22-year-olds here? He, was, he became king at 22 years old. He reigned for one year and walked in the ways of Ahab in Israel, uh, in evil. Then Jehu becomes king in chapters 9 and 10. Let me summarize Jehu by saying this. Jehu in the north, I told you all the northern kings are evil, right? Jehu cleans house, though. He cleans house. He kills all of Ahab's family. He takes all the prophets of Baal, pretends they're, they're going to worship Baal. Let's all get in the church building and worship Baal. He gets them all in there, and he tells his soldiers on the outside, if any of them escape, I'm going to kill you. And so um, he orders all of the prophets who are all in the, in the building to be killed. So he kills all of them, and he just cleans house. And he says at the end in verse, um, at the end it says that, he says, I am passionate for Yahweh. And you think, oh man, could Jeroboam, not Jeroboam, I'm sorry. Can Jehu be the one to clean house and bring Israel to that light? But then you read in verses in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, but he still walks in the ways of Jeroboam. So he, he kills all the Baal worshipers, but he still keeps the golden calves. And so, no, you thought this guy's passionate for the Lord, but no, he's still not. He has this, it says this about him in chapter 10. He was not careful to follow the instruction of Yahweh, God of Israel, with all his heart. So let me say to you, brothers and sisters, just from this, from Jehu, God is not seeking half-hearted obedience. 
Are you careful to follow the instruction of the Lord with all your heart? That's what God's looking for, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or like Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Jehu, Jehu did a lot. You could think, oh, I'm passionate for God. I'm doing all these good things. But his heart was not fully careful to walk in God's ways. Okay, so you got more kings. I'm going to fast forward now to the end here. Um, you got a lot of kings who are walking in the ways of Jeroboam, walking in evil, walking in idolatry. You could read through all of the different kings here as we just um, go through them. Um, at the very end of all of this evil, all of this disobedience, you get to chapter 17. Let's go to the fall now. Second Kings 17. Let's get here to the end. So God judges. So you have Solomon failing, the kings and kingdom splitting and sinning. You have the prophets speaking and warning. But Israel doesn't listen. Just king after king, evil, disobedient, stubborn. And then you have the fall in chapter 17. So look at chapter 17, verse 6. Here's the fall. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala, along with Habor, and in the cities of the Medes. So now Israel is taken out of Samaria. They're destroyed. Israel is gone. Assyria has, has conquered them. Why? Verse 7. This disaster happened because the people... Not just, not just the kings, okay? Get this right. It's not just kings. It's not just leaders. It's the congregation, the assembly, the people. The people of Israel sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And because they worshipped other gods, they lived according to the customs of the nations. In verse 9, they secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They were hiding their sin. They built high places in all their towns. They had sacred pillars on every high hill and under every green tree. They did evil things, angering the Lord. Verse 13, or verse 12, they served idols. 13, still the Lord warned Israel through every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways. There's the message of the prophets. Turn from your evil ways. Repent and keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law I commanded your ancestors and sent you through my servant, the prophets. But they did not listen. They did not believe in the Lord. They rejected his statutes. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They abandoned all the commands. They worshiped the two calves and an Asherah pole. They worshiped all the stars in the sky. They served Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in fire. And so God kicked them out. God kicked them out. This is the fall. This is like getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now Assyria is kicked out of the land, the promised land. Not because of one sin, like Adam and Eve. Because to keep the Mosaic Covenant, do you have to be perfect? To keep the Mosaic Covenant? No. That's why there are sacrifices, right? You can have forgiveness. Solomon prayed. We're going to sin. We know we're going to sin, Lord. But when we ask for forgiveness and look to your temple, look to your sacrifice, forgive us. But they didn't even do that. It's not that they're, they, didn't, they just were not failing to be perfect. They didn't even go to God for forgiveness. They didn't even repent. They weren't even broken over their sin. And for that... They were judged and exiled out of God's presence, out of God's land. Well, you have two more kings. Um, now, so that's the north. If you go to the south, you have two good kings and a few bad kings. Hezekiah is a really good king. He, he actually, look at chapter 18, verses 3 through 8. Let me just picture the two good kings for you. Just sketch them briefly here by reading 2 Kings 18, 3. 
He did what was right in Yahweh's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, shattered the sacred pillars, cut down the asher poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made. For until then, the Israelites were burning incense to it. Verse 5, he relied on Yahweh, God of Israel. He remained faithful to the Lord. And later, Assyria is going to come. This is my favorite Old Testament story when I went to Israel. I think I might have told you this before. There's this broad wall where Assyria was coming to attack them. Because Assyria just conquered the north, right? They just exiled the north. Now they're coming to south to Hezekiah. They get to Hezekiah. He relies on Yahweh. And when they get there, um, they just build this wall that's really, it's almost like this wall that looks good, but in the middle of it, it's all this rubble. They filled it in really quick to make a wall look like it was strong in Jerusalem as, as the Syrian army was coming. And so Hezekiah is there, and they're mocking him. You trust in Yahweh? Yahweh couldn't deliver Israel. Yahweh, Yahweh's not going to deliver you. And so Hezekiah prays. He talks to Isaiah. And God says, they're not going to come. They're not going to set foot in the land. And you know what God does? I love this story. I wish I could spend more time on it. But you could read it for yourself. What God does is he sends an angel of death. And he kills 185,000 Assyrians in the camp. Because they mocked Yahweh. That's what God does. He's supreme and he's king. And so they mocked Yahweh. So Hezekiah was faithful. God answers his prayer. Oh man, Hezekiah's end of his life. Hezekiah was on his deathbed. He was dying. And he, he was, I don't know what you think about your deathbed preparation. You can't really prepare for it, right? Hezekiah on his deathbed was bitter towards the Lord because he was dying. He wept bitterly and said, God, I served you so faithfully. And so Isaiah said, hey, you're going to die. And then uh, Hezekiah wept bitterly. And God heard Hezekiah's prayer and he said, okay, I'll extend your life for 15 years. So he extended Hezekiah's life for 15 years. And Hezekiah made the biggest mistakes of his life in those last 15 years. He opened up very arrogantly and proudly, showed off to the, the Babylonians, the treasury, and God rebuked him for that. And Hezekiah did not finish strong. It might be better to die early. D.A. Carson says this, it's better to die early and faithful than to die older and unfaithful. And so Hezekiah doesn't finish strong, but he gets there and then... Um, Manasseh, so I'll go two more kings and then the exile, and then we'll close. Manasseh is the most evil king. You can read about him in chapter 21. Chapter 22 is Josiah. Chapter 22 and chapter 23. Let me just tell you guys here about Josiah um, because he's the best of all the kings. This is crazy. He's even better in some ways than David, if you could believe that. Uh, Josiah did what was right in God's eyes. Now, here's what happened. Um, let, me, let me share here what, what happened with Josiah. Josiah was a king. He told people to clean the temple. They clean the temple. They find the, the book. So go to 2 Kings 22, verse 10. Chapter 22, verse 10. 22, verse 10, it says this. Then the court secretary found the book. Um, and then he reads the book, to, to the book of the law in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So I want you to notice here with Josiah, he hears God's word and he humbles himself and he cleans house. He cleans more than all of, more than all the other kings. Not only does he clean everything in, in Judah, he even goes to Bethel and the golden calf there and he cleans house there. He goes to Israel and cleans their place. Not only that, he does something that not even King David did. He does the Passover. John Lee's going to come tonight and preach on the Lord's Supper. They hadn't observed the Passover since the time of the judges. Not even David obeyed the law 
of keeping the Passover. Solomon never kept the Passover. They had the temple, he never kept the Passover. Josiah, so humble before God to obey everything God says, we're going to do the Passover. So they do the Passover, and God says, God is pleased with Josiah for obeying all that he commands. But he says, you know what? Manasseh was so bad and Judah so bad that they're going to be exiled. So to close here, God judges Judah. In 2 Kings 25, you could read that, but it's the, it's the judgment. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He judges Judah, and he, he, he um, exiles Judah. You know Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel, he was exiled in the first deportation in 605. Ezekiel was deported in 597 in the second deportation. Um, God wipes out Judah and, and um, banishes them from the land. And then we, we get this closing. Let's go, let's go here at the very end. So go to verse 27, last, last few verses here. So now Israel's gone. Judah in their sin is gone. They're exiled. And their king, even the king of Israel, is exiled under Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 27. You have a little bit of hope. This is a dark thing, a dark, a dark book. But verse 27, on the 27th day of the 12th month, on the 37th year of the exile of Judah's king, Jehoiachin, in the year of evil, Merodach became king of Babylon. He pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. Now, Jehoiachin is a descendant of David, a Davidic king. He spoke kindly to him, to, to, to Jehoiachin, and set his throne, get this, he set Jehoiachin's throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So, Jehoida, so Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for, the, as for his allowance, he regularly, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. So here's this dark thing where you start with Solomon, and they're in, it's like the Garden of Eden. Everyone flourishing. By the end of 400 years, Israel's gone. Judah's gone. Where's the Davidic king? He's in prison, or he's in in captivity, but you get this little glimmer of hope. That Davidic king was going to have a, a throne above the other kings, and he's going to sit there with the king of Babylon and be spoken to kindly. It's God almost saying, hey, even in the darkest thing, just like in Adam and Eve in the garden, they were kicked out of the garden, but God said that the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. Here, you have this hope. This, this, the, the line of David is not gone. The promise of the future Davidic king to come would come, and he would succeed. Where Israel fails, this Davidic king would not fail. Where Israel failed to be the light, this Davidic king would represent Israel and be the light and bring in the new covenant, which we're going to hear tonight from John Lee. And he would, he would unite everyone who unites to Jesus, the king, the son of David, would become part of the new covenant people of God. What we might sometimes even call maybe new covenant Israel. But here, through Jesus, Israel would become a royal priesthood, and a light to the nations because Jesus would do it for us. And so we wait for the king to come. Let me, let me um, give you three applications here before we close in prayer. Just from all this, all this story of, 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 of the kings and their failure. Application number one, aggressively pursue knowing God. God is patient and just, isn't he? I mean, it took 400 years. God is patient and just. He's patient to teach you and call you to repentance, but his patience does have a limit as well, right? God is firm and holy, but he is patient. So get to know God deeper each day. 
make progress in knowing God, know God's patience, but also know God's justice. Use the Sunday gatherings, just like Josiah used the Passover to teach, that was supposed to teach people to not forget God. Use the Lord's Supper tonight, I mean today. Use Sunday gatherings. Use what God has given you, the church gathering, to know God and to go deeper in him. Brothers and sisters, don't just come to church and leave. Come to know God in his patience, his holiness, his justice, his compassion, his supremacy, and point others to God because God wants to spread his glory. Our greatest need is to know God. And God gives us all of this failure of knowing God so that we would see our own failure and be desperate to aggressively get to know God, even this Sunday morning. Secondly, like Josiah, and unlike most of the kings, when you hear God's word, practice what I'm going to call humble heeding. Humble heeding of God's word. When you hear God's word, take it to heart. Concentrate on God's word. Pray over God's word. Repent. God's word, does God's word ever return empty and void? Yes or no? It never does. Even in a long sermon, we're just hearing about a bunch of kings who are failing. I don't know what God has for you today with a longer sermon like this on this kind of topic of just failure, 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 failure. But God has a word for us. He has a word for you and he has a word for us as Bethany Baptist Church. Israel failed. Not just the kings, not just the leaders, they failed. And so when we hear God's word as a church, let's humbly hear it and receive it and apply it in our lives. And lastly, and this is just more just observing all these kings and reading in one sitting. Feel a sense of urgency because your life is short. You're going to die soon, real soon. I mean, you have these people who reigned, you know, they became king, reigned for 17 years, they died. Where, you know, when, when, you, when you become an adult, you get married, you live a certain life, you die. Or you become an adult, start your career, live this long, and you die. Brothers and sisters, our lives are a vapor. Our time on earth is short. So let's take responsibility for our generation of being faithful to God. Look around at Bethany Baptist Church right now. Just look around at the church family. Some are here, some are not because of COVID. Let's be responsible in this generation of our church to be faithful to God together, hearing and heeding God's word. And let's pass on to the next generation that same humble heeding and trusting in God and his word through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.